did here at Covenant. We had a great graduation this week and uh, festivities. Um, this week, starting this Wednesday, we're going to have our uh, summer, uh, what, what, I can't even come up with the name of it, summer uh, cook-off classic whatever for, for, the, for Wednesday night. So if you can come, join us at 6 o'clock this Wednesday. Hopefully the rain will leave us alone and uh, we're going to have some hot dogs and some fried chicken and different things, but uh, if you plan on coming, please sign up. We have an online sign up or a, a table out there for all the extra things we need, because we need plenty of desserts, right? Even if we don't have the main course, at least have tons of desserts, and we'll have activities and other things as well. That's a precursor to our, our Wednesday night teachings. Uh, we're we're going to have vacation Bible school for eight weeks over the uh, the summer on Wednesday nights, and we're going to have a marriage um, maintenance class as well as a study in the book of Colossians. And so I encourage you guys to uh, make Wednesday nights a priority this summer because we need fellowship, we need community. And especially with gas prices the way they are, you're probably going to stick closer to home than you probably planned to earlier. So do that. So when I was a kid, the original Nintendo was a big deal. I was too young when Atari was king, but I re remember distinctly the first friend uh, at a sleepover at a friend's house who had a Nintendo. His name was Ben Ford, if you remember Mike and Amanda Ford. I remember going to Ben Ford's house and playing Super Mario Brothers, and it blew my mind. And I thought, wow, it's like an arcade in the home. And uh, so... <clears throat> My brother and sister and I, dad struck a deal with us and said, if you scrape the outside of the house this summer and paint the outside of the house, you'll earn your Nintendo. So we did that. And uh, the thing about old Nintendo games was it was hard to beat them. It was hard to beat any Nintendo game. You had to memorize everything or just get lucky just to get to the next part of the game. And most games, you had to start at the beginning every time you played. They did not have a save option, and some of the games that did have the save option, your friend would come over and play it and forgot to press the reset button when they turned the power off and erase your game. Uh, so there were no saves. Some games had codes that were weird symbols that you'd write down on a napkin, and then you couldn't read it later because you couldn't read your own handwriting. They had dust and glitches, and you'd blow in the cartridge to get it to play and shift it around, and um, video games, as, after a while, started to lose their fun because it was so difficult to beat them. Eventually, they created something called a Game Genie, an $80 attachment that you'd connect to your disc, and you'd put it in the system, and it allowed you to have um, invincibility or as many lives as you wanted or, or other things like that. And so the ultimate tool was finally in your hands, and you could finally beat these games that you'd always wondered to know uh, what the ending was like. You know, some games you'd beat it and said it would say in, in broken English because it was translated, you are a good player or something like that. But <clears throat> you'd, you'd finally beat these games, but it would have an empty hollowness, right? Because you cheated. The, the game genie was a way that enabled you to cheat. And you forgot what made video games fun. It was the wonder of the experience and not the drive to conquer. It was the wonder of the experience and not the drive to conquer. When the goal became to beat it or 100% it, obsession took over and it could become a chore rather than a fun time. 
Now, I can attest to this even in adulthood. I mentioned video games here. But I like to hunt, and I like to fish, and I like to do those things. And there's times where I have to remind myself, the point is not what you get to shoot or what you get to catch. It's the experience in itself. And that's such a secret to life, is the process is the important thing. Now, I think it's something in our human nature that desires to measure success and aim at a goal. In sports, you don't just want to win. The question is, how much did you win by, right? It's not just, did you win? Uh, In business, what's your five-year plan? In life, we have certain things we want to experience by a certain age. We want our math to be exact and our science to be accurate, and for good reason. A house with imperfect angles will be imperfectly built and have problems, or too much or too little of something will ruin a cake. I don't know if you guys know this, but a couple weeks ago, Joy Pacifica, who's our, our children's director, came into church with a chocolate cake. And she, she told me, she said, I, I gave this to the kids this morning. She said, the thing is, I made it yesterday for my family, and I forgot to add in the sugar. And she said, I, I brought it in for the kids in church to eat because I wanted them to realize that if something in your life is missing a key ingredient, it doesn't taste the same. It may look nice. It may be appealing but it's lacking to use that as a, as a teaching tool. Um, the problem with goals and measurements is when it becomes an issue of control. Either we set our goals too low so it doesn't take much effort to achieve, or our measurements are against someone equally or, or a little lesser qualified than us so it's not much of a challenge, or we set such a high goal or standard that it's impossible for us to achieve. Um, So we can't live without goals and measurements. We just can't. We have to have some motivating force in our life. But the point of the message today is to choose the right goal and the proper way of measuring our progress toward that goal, okay? So what's the right goal and what's the proper way of measuring your progress toward that goal? We're in Zechariah chapter 2 today. This is our Uh, The second part of the vision, remember Zechariah has eight visions in one night. Can you imagine having a dream with eight separate visions? If he's like me, he probably woke up and had to write it down immediately because as the day went on, everything would fade. I want to get everything out of my head while it's clear. Um, And so we talked about the first vision last week. And uh, and so we're into the second today. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When I looked again, I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Where are you going, I asked. He replied, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was with me went to meet a second angel who was coming toward him. The other angel said, hurry and say to that young man, Jerusalem will someday be so full of people and livestock that there won't be room enough for everyone. Many will live outside the city walls then I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord, and I will be the glory inside the city. Now, before we jump into how this passage applies to us, let me remind you that the book of Zechariah is a prophetic book. It's written to a certain people at a certain time for a certain purpose. And those receiving this letter need to know that Jerusalem will not only survive 
beyond the point that they're existing in now, but it'll eventually thrive to the point that the previous walls of the city of David won't be enough to encompass the whole city. Uh, the image that's on your screens right now, outside of Jerusalem, is a, a, a model, a scale model of what Jerusalem looked like during the time of Christ. And if you look at the lower level of the map, you'll see what was the original city, the city of David. And it had walls around it. And to the left and, and just north of the temple, you'll see a whole other section, a much bigger section. That was the growth that happened post-Zechariah's time as the Roman invading force and, and the population increased. And past those walls, um, you can't really see in this picture, but there, there were other houses being built, even out toward where they believe Golgotha to be. And so what happens in this passage, what Zechariah is doing, is he's giving them a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled within 400 years, all the way up to the time of Christ, that the city of Jerusalem will so grow and expand and thrive that the, 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 the people living there won't even be able to dwell within the walls. In the moment in which they're existing, everything is in ruin. Everything is in, is in rubble. They only have the foundation of the temple. They don't, the, the, the walls are not there. They're, they're wondering, will Jerusalem ever be what it used to be? And so this prophecy is timely for what they're facing. So, the next question that should arise in this is, why are we studying this? How does this apply to us? If this is a prophecy specifically given to these people at this time, what can I get out of it? The simple answer to that is, God never changes. And so in every scripture you'll study, God's character is true no matter what. And so whether you can immediately say, see, look at it and identify and say, yeah, I can relate to that, or this is my own life experience or not, you can always look and see what is God doing? What is God saying? What does this tell me about his character? And so as you look at that, if you, as you understand the principles of God's character, it can lead to your growth and blessing in your life. Now, we could take this passage out of context and apply it to the United States or apply it to our church or whatever else. It, it, we, could, we could just do whatever. But what we seek to find in many of these prophetic books is the true principles of God's character that will properly guide our lives as well. And so in this passage, the clear message, message is this. Don't measure God's future plans on old blueprints. Don't measure God's future plans on old blueprints. It's funny, even in this church, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at, at what God wants to do with us, growth-wise and structural-wise, and and even with COVID, like we had some plans. We had a direction where we thought God was leading us specifically for the school for expansion. And then COVID hit and, and, and there were supplies cost more and, and businesses weren't able to function. And all the rest, and it was like, all right, now that we're kind of past that, we're in this, this new mode, we started looking at old plans and God said, no, 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 no. I changed the season. <laughs> it's not the season for that. There's new things coming. There's new things that I have for you. And so, most likely, during this time period, the people in Israel probably just following the remains of what existed from David's wall. 
And in that moment, they're probably trying to restructure David's wall, and they're saying, man, this, this is too big for us. There's not half the people here that were here before. This wall, we need to make a smaller wall, a tighter wall, something that, that fits us better now. But as this man is measuring Jerusalem as it stands during the time of Zechariah, God sends an angelic messenger to hurry and tell him something. I love those little details, those little adjectives. Hurry and tell him. Hurry and tell him. And what's the, what's the message? Your measurements are too small, buddy. What looks like impossible ruins now will be teeming with life greater than the structure, the current structure can handle. And so this is our own personal application. As we're rebuilding our lives, as we're rebuilding worship in this church, um, let's not allow our small picture to dictate what we do. Let's seek God for His big picture. And so I promise you that the leaders of this church, whether it's the board of trustees or the board of stewards or the school board or the staff or the administration, all of us, when we're thinking about what God wants to do in this place, we have our ideas and we have what makes sense to us and all the rest. We look at what God has, what God has financially blessed us with and what we think we're capable of, and we've talked through that, all of that. But what it comes down to for all of us is, okay, God, this is our perspective. Now, what do you want to do? <laughs> this is what we think we're capable of. What do you want to do? And that's what we need to each do individually. This is what I have to offer. This is my resources. This is my network. This is my capabilities. What can you do with me? Let's not be like Gideon, right, who's threshing wheat in a wine press, hiding out. You can't use me, but but I, the angel just called me the great warrior of God. God's big picture is much bigger than we can understand in a moment. So how do we keep from building that structure too small or setting goals too short? You go to the one who has the master plans and ask him. Our faith is not a guessing game. Let me say that again. Our faith is not a guessing game. It doesn't have to be. I think God, do you know? Do you know? Another game on the old Nintendo, The Legend of Zelda. I loved The Legend of Zelda. It was really a cool game, but it was so hard to figure out. Why? Because there were secret doors and staircases and other things that you could not find on your own. It was impossible. And so I would play it to a certain point, and then I'd get frustrated and quit because I didn't know where to go next. So how did people ever beat The Legend of Zelda back in 1986? They would call the Nintendo hotline. There were experts that you could call and pay a certain fee, and they would tell you how to get past a certain section. Or... When Nintendo Power Magazine came out, that was the best thing, right? Because you, you got it in the mail, and all secrets and tips and codes, or the playground, right? There's always that kid on the playground that claimed that they beat a certain character or game with one hit or whatever else, and whatever. Or, eventually, they came out with strategy guides. They didn't have those when I was a kid. Either 
way, what you were actually doing is you were going to the creators of the game and saying, how? How do I do this? How do I move forward? How do I reach my goal? So why don't we do that with the author of life? It's not cheating, guys. The author of life invites us. You have not because you ask not. So what ultimately is our goal? As they are putting their hands to the task of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, God wants to remind them of the real goal. They had a city before. It didn't last. They had a beautiful temple for hundreds of years. It's rubble now. Their goal couldn't be the structures and the stuff that they could measure. Their real goal was given freely. Verse 5, Then I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord, and I will be the glory inside the city. What ultimately is our goal? God's personal presence protecting and dwelling with us. That's the point. That's the point. That's something that we need to grasp as a church. It's not what you're doing, it's who you're doing it with. It's a whole different experience. I can go to Disney World by myself and have a great time, but it's far different if I go with somebody that I can share that story with and remind each other of the great time that we had, or notice something that I wouldn't see on my own. I like hunting by myself at times. Yes, because I, I have that fellowship with God, but I love hunting with other people because they experience the same things. They see a different perspective. We learn, we grow together. That is life. It's because we're doing it with God. He is the point. And so it's almost like the angels running up to this guy and saying, what you're doing is great, but don't forget that my presence isn't contained in city walls or a temple. Jerusalem will be great again because I'm with you. I'm with you. Let's keep reading. The Lord says, come away, flee from Babylon in the land of the north, for I have scattered you to the four winds. Come away, people of Zion, you who are exiled in Babylon. After a period of glory, the Lord of heaven's army sent me against the nations who plundered you. For he said, anyone who harms you harms my most precious possession. I will raise my fist to crush them, and their own slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. The Lord says, shout and rejoice, O beautiful Jerusalem. I, I love it. Beautiful Jerusalem? <laughs> it's ruins. It's wrecked. Oh, beautiful Jerusalem, for I am coming to live among you. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day, and they too will be my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies sent me to you. The land of Judah will be the Lord's special possession and the holy land, and he will once again choose Jerusalem to be his own city. Be silent before the Lord, all humanity, for he is springing into action from his holy dwelling. Amen. So to start off this passage, he's calling the people to leave Babylon, come out of exile, come home. And so this raises a question inside of me. 
Why do people stay in bad or abusive situations? Why would anybody want to stay in Babylon? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe you yourself have stayed in a relationship with somebody, whether marriage or dating or just a friendship that was harmful to you and you had trouble leaving it. Or maybe even a business situation that you, you it was just, it was just terrible. It was poison. Or even a church. Why? Why do we stay in those situations? And in this context, why would you stay in Babylon? You have every right to freedom. King Cyrus has said anybody can go home and, and I'll help you rebuild your city. Why would anybody choose to remain in Babylon? I got four things. Even though things weren't great, they were comfortable. Some people stay in abusive situations because there's enough benefit in it that they overlook the bad stuff. Let's say you're married to a millionaire. Oh, yeah, he, he cusses me out and he beats me from time to time, but I get a nice sports car. I can buy whatever dresses I want. I, I, I'm, I'm well known in the community. Happens. It's not great, but it's comfortable. The second reason, no one likes change. So fear of the unknown can make you lame. Better the evil I know than the evil I don't. Hmm. I, you can be so broken down that your trust for anyone or anything is gone. So you just, you're lame. The third thing, as we've been talking about, even last week, sometimes fear takes away the realization that we have a choice. And I, I'm going to just say the same thing I said last week. Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven and is preparing a place for us in order to give us a choice. Every day you have a choice. You can leave. But I think the primary reason why people would stay in Babylon or an abusive situation is they don't want to do the work to rebuild something better. I, that means starting all over. I'm too old. I'm too weary. I don't have the strength. I, I don't want to start all over. That's not, that's not easy. And so God in this passage is pleading with the people to flee the abuse of exile and return home. Yes, the homeland is a work in progress. Yes, it's far from comfortable. Yes, you'll probably have to do without some things that you're used to. But... I'm going to bless this city. My presence is going to be there. Jerusalem, as you see it, won't stay that way. It'll be bursting at the seams. Come home. I feel the same way about this church. Let's gather and build something here where the personal presence of Jesus is felt every time we meet. I want people to get saved again when they drive into our parking lot. I want his presence so heavy that I don't have to preach. How great would it be if I didn't have to preach on a Sunday morning because God just met us? Said, you don't need to hear Pastor Nate say anything. I got this. That's what I want. All we can do in life is invite people. That's, that's the other component here. There are 
family members, neighbors, friends, co-workers that we have out there that we know that are in abusive situations. And they're not even aware of it. They're either abusing themselves or allowing themselves to be abused. And what are we doing? Let's invite them to join us. What's the worst they can do? Say no? That's all Jesus is doing. That's all the, the angels sending to do is come home, come home, come home. There are so many people we know that can have a much better life and walk with Jesus, but they won't jump in. There are some that come only on Sunday morning, and there's so much more waiting for you. So if you're in a harmful or destructive place, why stay there? Well, the next part of the passage says, my wrath is coming. Those that harm you harm my most precious possession. I will deal with them. So if we know that God's judgment is going to fall on people that hurt his chosen ones, why would we stay there to witness that? You don't have to stay there. Then we get to verse 10. I love it. He calls us once again to shout. We talked about this last week. What happens when God's people shout? The walls of Jericho falls. Shout and rejoice, O beautiful Jerusalem, for I am coming to live with you. Many are invited to return home. Many are called to come back to fellowship and community and all the rest. But we know for certain that one is coming. And that's Jesus. God saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. And then we have a prophecy that he's referring to in this passage that's coming up in our church calendar in two weeks. Do you know what that is? Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit. On that day of Pentecost, there were Jewish people and God-fears from every nation who had gathered in Jerusalem for that festival. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, they began speaking in languages that they didn't learn. And everyone that was surrounding them from all these different nations heard the gospel in their own tongue. And thousands came to Christ that day. Zechariah 2 talks about that moment. And the passage ends with specific instruction. Be silent before the Lord, all humanity, for he is springing into action from his holy dwelling. Let me just say, what we're to build our lives upon, both personally and as a body of Christ, isn't based on our plans or our actions. God has a plan a blueprint that we haven't seen yet. <laughs> and he's saying, I'm springing into action. I'm springing. I mean, the, the, the word springing. <laughs> My wife loves to tell people this. It happened a couple times. It's kind of embarrassing. But when I was younger, uh, and we were newly married, some mornings I would literally jump out of bed. I don't know why. I was just awake and ready to go, and excited. I had more energy, I guess. Less kids, more energy, right? And I would literally jump out of bed, and sometimes I would jump out of bed, and I'd land at my feet, and my legs weren't awake yet. And I would literally crash. And then I'd panic. I'd be like, honey, my legs aren't working. So I'd have to climb back up and let the blood flow into my legs, and then I could start walking. It literally happened a couple times, and she would just lay in bed and laugh at me. 
When God springs into actions, his legs don't give out. When we spring into action, we're typically not ready. God is springing into action. And so our job is be silent all of humanity. Well, I think I know what we should do. I got a great... God, what do you want? What do you want? What's your plan? What's your vision? What are you calling us to? And that's why prayer has to be central in this church. To seek God fervently in prayer. Because we don't know unless he tells us. So we need to get on our knees before him. Our goals need to be set on his plans and not our own. Number one. And number two, our measurements um, need to be focused on where the Spirit is working and moving. So our goals is set on what God's telling us. Secondly, our measurement is not on numbers, not on physical buildings, not on structures. None of those things we can measure. Our measurement is where's the Holy Spirit? Where's He working and moving? Uh, Dr. Dennis Kinlaw I remember a, a message that I heard him preach one time. <clears throat> him and his wife, uh, when he was a fairly young pastor, they would talk about how many people came to church that Sunday. That was trying to measure some sort of idea or success or, or whatever else. But they got to a point as they matured in Christ where the question was, was God's spirit there today? Did he meet you there? And if the answer was yes, then that's all the measurement they needed. Not who was there or who wasn't there or how many people came to the altar. No. Was God's Spirit there? Number three. Our measurements. Uh, we need to leave what is harmful to us and others and return to establish worship here in our church, our homes, and our communities. You do not need to remain in exile. Harmful patterns. Destructive behaviors. You have a choice. And lastly, we need to keep our focus on Jesus completely. His focus. It's, it's a natural tendency. The other point is part in Scripture where I see God scolding somebody is when David was measuring his fighting force. You remember? God said, don't do that. Don't measure your fighting force. The battle is won in the spiritual realm. I can use Gideon to defeat the Midianites with 1% of his initial fighting force, and I win in the camp. Don't do that. So don't measure. Don't compare. Let's seek God's face. Let's go where his spirit is, and let's believe that he has a blueprint much bigger than we can imagine. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you and praise you for the power of your word and its life-giving truth for your presence in our lives, Lord. And I pray, God, that we would get back to the point where we enjoy the process of walking daily with you. God, as uh, Aaron DePew used to say, we're living the good old days now. <laughs> Let's not look so far to the future that we're missing what God has for us in the moment. God, you have an amazing plan. And so 
as we, we feel this motivating force, um, this call to, to grow this church to maturity as, as you're stirring hearts and moving us into deeper community and fellowship and all these things, Lord. Help us to just focus on your presence. Help us to stay on our knees and listen for your plan. And God, continue that refining work in each of us individually. Thank you for this church family. Let your word not fall on deaf ears, but find deep root in the soft soil of our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.